You're listening to. And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we have an author chat with Olive Blake, the author of Masters of Death, the Atlas Six series, and Alone With You on the Ether, as well as several young adult books under her real name, Alexine Ferrofomuth. Um, Olive Blake, of course, is her pen name for her adult stuff. Yeah, we had a lovely chat with Olivy about uh, her start in writing, about how she started with fan fiction and going to self-publishing and then uh, finally transitioning into traditional publishing. She definitely has a very unique journey as a writer. So we uh, had a great chat about that and also just about book talk because <laughs> That is a world that uh, Marvin and I don't venture into that often. So uh, that was like interesting to uh, to talk about, too, about like how her book went viral. As always, the Books and Boba podcast is supported by you, our listeners, at patreon.com slash booksandboba, where our Patreon subscribers have access to our members-only um, Books and Boba Discord server, as well as our monthly um, bonus Boba Chat episodes, where we talk about things outside of the book world. So yeah, with that said, uh, please enjoy our conversation with Olive Blake. And we're here with Olive Blake, the best-selling author of the Atlas Six series, as well as Alone With You on the Ether and the recently re-released Masters of Death. Welcome to the show, Olive. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, um, we always love to start off our author chats by asking our authors um, how they became one. So um, can you walk <laughs> us through your journey into becoming like a an author of multiple published books? Yeah, sure. I will try not to ramble too long. It is, uh, you know, there are many, many paths to publishing. I took a very weird one. I took one that would be probably impossible to replicate, but I'll hopefully you'll get something out of it. <laughs> um, so I didn't want to be an author. I mean, well, more accurately, it's one of those things where like, it's one of those pipe dreams that feels very unrealistic to the point of being potentially irresponsible. Uh, my mom is an immigrant. Uh, she came here from Manila shortly before I was born. And um, she really, really wanted me to have a practical career and a practical major. And at 18 years old, I was like, I'm going to be the most practical thing that my little 18 year old brain can probably can properly invent, which is an urban planner. <laughs> so I went to school for urban planning. Um, I got a master's in urban planning, decided that I found the day-to-day -day work very uh, monotonous and dull. I'm not the kind of person who can work on a project for a long time and not see forward motion, <laughs> which is kind of a requirement for like any level of government. Um, and so I went to law school. I was working as a public defender law clerk for a while. I wanted to be a public defender. It was, uh, frankly, too sad. Um, it was very emotionally draining work. Uh, the criminal justice system is so like being a lawyer is just like having your hands tied behind your back. Very frustrating. Um, and I also am. <laughs> There's no way for me to like casually throw this out. I'm, I'm like mentally ill, I say with a hair toss. So I have Oh, bipolar. it's okay. I am too. So <laughs> yeah. Yay. I mean, like, 
we all are, right? Like, but I mean, like, it's, it's funny because I treat it very casually. And then people like kind of give me this look like they don't know what to do with the way that I've just said it. So anyway, so I have bipolar. Um, I dropped out of law school. It was not a good place for my brain. I wrote this book that I call like my primal scream manuscript. Like I dropped out of law school in December at the end of January, had a finished manuscript that I was never going to do anything with. It was just too like personal a story. It was, it was a girl in her mid twenties, like having a meltdown. So like, you know, that's many books, but also not everybody needs that book. Um, so I, you know, I tried to, I went back on my urban planning degree. I worked in commercial real estate for a while. I was a freelance graphic designer and I know this is a long story, but yeah, so I ended up, um, uh, through a logistical error, my psychiatrist didn't refill my pills. And then I was awake for like a week. Um, so I started writing fan fiction on the internet. Um, and at that point I was like, wow, I feel better actually like this. I, I, in, in my attempts to coexist with the world, um, in, in what had to be healthy for my, you know, law school, real estate brain was medicating pretty heavily to the point where I didn't have any desire to create. And as soon as the medication went away, I started writing like obsessively, like 12 hours a day, realized it was the only thing that made me feel actually better. Like, you know, the pills, they, they helped me coexist, like I said, but they, they didn't make me feel alive or myself. Um, and because there was nothing to like pressing on my time, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I wanted. Uh, it was a good time for me to start making art and, and to feel like that was the best version of myself. And like, you know, I ask myself all the time, like, am I really doing the most good I could possibly do for the world? Like, I like to think of myself as a person who wants to do good things and I couldn't do it as an urban planner and I couldn't do it as a lawyer. And it seems silly to do it as a fiction writer. Um, but it, it meant, it, it meant reaching people in a way that I couldn't and hadn't been able to before. So I was like, all right, I'm going to try to do it. Um, publishing is hard though. Uh, so I started self-publishing my books that I didn't think there was a space in the market for the first of which was masters of death, um, because it had a vampire in it. And at the time it was 2017, I think, uh, when I had finished it, I self-published it in 2018 and every agent was like, do not send me vampires. I'm not going to read it. Like, I just don't want, I just don't want supernatural, whatever. I get it. We were still in like the twilight, like after effect era, um, (laughs) oversaturated in the vampire stuff. Um, or so people say I personally wasn't, um, but yeah, uh, self-published masters of death, one for my enemy. I like every few months came out with a self-published book that I was like, "Mm, traditional publishing doesn't want this in. And at the same time I was querying my other books, um, hoping like this might suit the market or maybe this. And, um, so I got my, I got my first, break in publishing when I got my agent for My Mechanical Romance, which is my young adult book uh, under my real name. Uh, we are separated. <laughs> my identities are separated by age range. Um, so Alexine writes for teens and all of you writes for adults. Uh, that's the intended audience. And then a year later, when I was very, very pregnant, uh, The Atlas Six, which was my ninth self-published book, went viral um, through not my doing at all. Like I wrote the book, but that's where it ends. <laughs> I, I was not active on social media at the time. I'm not on TikTok at all. So the fact that it went viral on book talk, like to me is just a, it's a product of 
my illustrator, Lil Kimura, who had like an, this amazing, you know, visual quality, um, the rise of TikTok, uh, the isolation during the pandemic, like all this stuff contributed to this weird, like social effect of this book going so powerfully viral that Tor became interested in it. And um, so I signed with Tor uh, to re-release the first book and then the, the rest of the trilogy. And, you know, over time, as we really enjoyed working together, I have the best team at Tor. Um, they also purchased some things from my backlist. So Alone With You in the Ether, One for My Enemy, and Masters of Death in that order were republished. Alone With You in the Ether, no changes, just like typo fixes. And then One for My Enemy and Masters of Death, because they were such older works of mine, have seen like style edits. Um, so plot's the same, but like the the wording has been elevated to the writer that I am now. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I think it's so interesting that you came from a self-publishing background. It is, it's so different from traditional publishing, but I guess our listeners, you know, they might not know the process behind self-publishing. Mm -hmm. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that, do you have beta readers? Do you have, I mean, like you don't have a traditional editor on your team. So what is that like? So I would not, the way that I did, did self-publishing is not the way you should do self-publishing. Like if, you, <laughs> if you as a writer would like your pathway to publishing to be self-publishing, the main question there is, do you want to run your own business? Because that's what self-publishing is. And it's a truly viable, it's a truly viable career path if that's what you want to do. Um, and I think there are a lot of benefits to it. Like I came out with the Atlas Six pretty much immediately after I wrote it, which means that even though it was part of the dark academia trend that we're now quite saturated in, I got there early. Like I beat a lot of a lot of authors to the punch because I published it immediately as opposed to going through the like two to three year traditional publishing production process. But anyway, so the actual like nitty gritty of self-publishing, um, you are your own you're your own production, your own editorial, you're your own design. Like obviously all of that stuff you can outsource if you have the resources. Um, you can slash should uh, hire editors, um, you know, interior and interior design and cover design are two very different things. There's a lot of stuff that I did like very improperly because I wasn't trying to make a living self-publishing. I was just because I had been a fan fiction writer for so long, I had an audience, not a large audience, but like enough of an audience that I knew like a solid couple hundred people might buy a, a self-published book. That is not enough to live on. You're really aiming more towards, you know, the volumes of thousands, um, which is kind of why I, for me, it was very much like a, I had friends who edited for me, like who proofread for me. And it was very much, um, like, a, I wouldn't call it beta readers. It was more like critique partners, you know, where we would do like it, it was a it was a mutual thing that I would also read their work. Um, so like, you know, when you're when you're first starting out, everything is a real bartering process. Um, Lil Kimura, my illustrator that I've always worked with, who's illustrated all of my books, um, I would commission her, but for like, you know, like ten dollars in illustration, a rate that would never happen if we weren't friends. <laughs> So, um, and, and I designed my own covers and I did my own interior design, but arguably not very well. Uh, it took me a while to get it right. Um, and all this stuff was just, it was just such a, such a, like a home brewed process. Um, but you know, if you want to make, if you want to make an actual commercial product, you would do things a lot differently than I did. 
Um, but there are lots of self-published authors who do a great job. Um, I think Katie Robert does some self-publishing still. Uh, Kennedy Ryan, like, self-publishes very successfully. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of, uh, I think, actually, never mind. I'm not going to say it because I'm not sure. <laughs> but, you know, like, small press, and I just want to say small press and self-publishing, totally, totally viable ways to make a living. And I didn't need to publish with Tor. I just didn't want to do a lot of the stuff that self-publishing involved. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, going back to, I, I really related to your your story coming up as like an urban planner because I also worked a little bit as like in urban planning, and I totally related. I totally get what you're saying when like nothing moves because government just wants to like do reports and do nothing on them. I get it. <laughs> there, there is a lot. There is a lot standing in the way. I feel like you can't really understand the life of like Parks and Rec is very, very accurate. Like, if you've never attended a community forum, you can't possibly understand why nothing ever moves. But I had a professor who, when I was a freshman, she pulled me aside and she was like, you're really good at, like, the work here. You know, the academic work, the, like, the the philosophy of government and all this stuff. You're really good at this. But I just want you to know that the actual job, and she told me this story about this guy who had worked on the 710 extension. I'm in LA. I don't know if this means anything to you. We're both in LA as well. So totally understand. (laughs) So the 710 extension, he worked on that for the 50 years of his career and it still doesn't exist. And he was the kind of person who was like, he liked it. He went home at five. He left his work at work. It was fine. He did what he needed to do. He was constantly moving towards something. It didn't really matter to him whether it existed or not. And she's like, but you, you are going to be frustrated by this. And I was like, (laughs) you're absolutely right. I think that explains why you went into fan fiction, because it is instant gratification. Like you are posting chapters in real time and you get feedback real time. Um, And you have like this like very unique readership. And I just want to ask like, like after your book Atlas Six uh, went viral on Book Talk, like how has the online response to your book changed the way you think of readership? Because you already come from this background where you have an online readership. Yeah, it's pretty different. There is surprisingly not very much overlap between, like there's some, but there's not a huge amount of overlap between fan fiction readers and um, the readers who came to my books. Like I feel like there are very there are multiple entry points, um, but I was surprised actually there are a, a large number of people who don't know that I wrote fan fiction. Um, and so that's just as a, I, I think of them in my head as like different groups of people, but certainly it's very strange. I feel much more like a commodity now than I did before. The Atlas Six specifically is, is a very strange book. Um, so I, I never tried to traditionally publish the Atlas Six. It was also never a fan fiction. It's its own thing. Um, and because I knew it was, I knew that it was going to require like a very, um, it was going to require a very empathetic reader. It was going to require a reader who was willing to be equally interested in these six very different, very like (laughs) strewn across moral, the spectrum of morality. Um, and, and they were going to have to be equally interested in all of these characters open to seeing all these characters grow and change or not grow and not change and um, the relationships they would have with each other. It was also going to present as this very familiar concept of like, you know, the dark academia 
they're chosen for the secret society. It has a very cult-like, very pulpy aspect to it, but it's ultimately about the interiority of these six characters and their relationships, which I think is unconventional unless you consider what all of fan fiction is. Um, So (laughs) it is referred to on the internet. I've now seen a couple times. It is referred to as the Marmite book in that people either hate it or love it. And um, it's, it's kind of to the point where I'm a little bit afraid actually, when I see an Instagram post that features the Atlas six, because I never know what the caption is going to say. (laughs) Sometimes it's going to be, um, You know, sometimes it's going to be very, very like, I love this book. Sometimes it's going to be, I hated this book. And sometimes it's this weird sort of backward complicit of like, I thought this book was going to be way dumber and it was fine. (laughs) Okay, thank you. Um, It's it's definitely, I sort of feel pulled in two directions because I think I used to be more concerned with a much more insular audience, like the audience who is already accustomed to my storytelling and and the kind of characters I focused on with my self-published works. Like I was writing with the understanding that they already got me and now I have to write. It's part of my job to write for the broadest possible audience. So sometimes I have to make decisions that are like arguably commercial um, that's just like, okay, well, we have to acknowledge the fact that some people won't understand this scene and you have to explain it more. Or like some people are going to want to see this dynamic and maybe you should do this. Like there, there are nudges in certain directions, I think. And, um, and yeah, and, and the Atlas series is very strange because there's also a weird amount of, Will Kamara said this correctly, uh, the other day, which is that everybody loves an underdog, but nobody actually wants to see you succeed. <laughs> like that there's some, there's, there's a different energy from like, oh, this person's totally underhyped and you should read. Like, I remember when the Atlas Six was starting to go viral. It was lots of like, this is an indie author. She's a woman of color. Like it's this really diverse thing. And it's this interesting book and I've never read anything like it. And then that very quickly transitioned to this is completely overhyped. She doesn't know what she's doing. It's pretentious. Like it's this very, um, people love to hate. It's this very, and I, and I don't, I don't mean people, I guess I, I'm constantly having to remind myself that like the audience that's on social media, the very online audience is not the whole audience. And it's actually very fractional. Um, but it's, it's definitely something I have to think about because I do feel like this sort of weird, innate Mm. nakedness whenever a book comes out and I'm like very terrified for the third Atlas book. I will not lie to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Social media is always, I mean, everyone has different tastes, of course, but like social media is just such a volatile place like i was at a podcast conference a couple weeks ago and there everyone was saying you need to get on tiktok that's how you gain new audiences like i don't tiktok scares me and i don't know (laughs) it's definitely i i see the arguments like that because i think like are there people who are yes but it's a you have to use the platform in order to understand it you have to be an active user in order and you have to actually like love the community and be part of it in order to reap all those benefits. You can't just like, you can't just PR at someone, you know? And, um, and yeah, so I think that's why like a lot of, like a lot of 
authorhood, which feels like a silly thing to even talk about because it's such a, it's such a limited scope is, is this sort of performative. Yeah. You have to do this because it's what other authors are doing, but like, that doesn't mean that it works. Like ultimately you have, you find the luck is in finding your people is in finding the people who really love something because the, the truest thing about publishing, the thing that has always been and will always be true is that it's word of mouth. That's what spreads everything. I think in all the arts, when people genuinely love something, they pass that along and you can't worry about generating artificial love. It just doesn't work the same way. Yeah. It's also great that you came from fan fiction because not a small, not, not an insignificant amount of our authors that we chat with on this, on this podcast got their start in fan fiction. I think for, especially for authors from like marginalized communities, like that mm-hmm. was where a lot of the, the training was and, you know, books and Boba officially on the side of fan fiction authors are real authors. Oh <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I don't even treat that like a question anymore. <laughs> like it's, it's so absolute to me. And I, you know, and I once made a, a comment, I, I, I once tweeted, which like always a mistake. Every horror story begins with, <laughs> I once wrote a tweet. Um, there, it was something, there was some anti fan fiction take was going around and I rarely ever participate in discourse, but I said something like, you know, it's very like, this is not the like punk take that you think it is to be anti-fan fiction because it's like we're talking about publishing as an industry is almost like 95% white or something and like 80 plus percent straight. And and yeah, exactly. How are people like me? I was never going to I'm not getting an MFA. I'm not going to the University of Iowa or whatever. Like it's not happening. Um, and, and it would never have happened. And the the the. Even even the knowledge that anyone needed my story that came from fan fiction that like that anyone related to what I was saying, because ultimately, like anyone can do the work to write a book. Anyone, everyone, in my opinion, opinion (laughs) has a story in them. And and that sort of like the 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 belief and the resiliency and the adaptability that carries you through the process of trying to be published, that comes from this sense that like it matters. And that is what I got from fan fiction. Yeah. I, as someone who devours fan fiction on a regular basis and has also written fan fiction, like I, I totally get it. Um, but like, I want to talk about your re-release book, Masters of mm-hmm. Death. Um, it was your first originally self-published novel, if, if I'm correct. And yes. it came out in like 2018. Uh, can you tell us your initial inspiration for the story? I mean, what I got was uh, grim fairy tales, Godfather death. I don't know a lot of people if a lot of people know that story, but I just want to know your inspiration for Masters of Death. So at the time that I wrote Masters of Death, Masters of death I was also writing a fan fiction that um, was sort of like Scheherazade concept conceptually that like every every chapter involved a retold fairy tale that was meant to fit into the larger dystopian story that was happening so as a result of this i think there i used like 31 different fairy tales and it involved me digging around and a lot of different mythologies i was reading so much mythology and folklore like from everything i could find and so i think at that point that's how i came across the story godfather death by the brothers grimm um, which is a totally, it, it's a, it's a, it's a cautionary tale. Basically it starts with 
um, a father whose son has just been born. He and his wife are dying of poverty. <laughs> and so he, his wife dies. He takes his son, like in his last moments, you know, he goes into the woods trying to find someone to care for his baby son. Um, he encounters, I think the devil, I think it's the actual devil that he encounters and is like, the devil's like, sure, I'll take the baby. And the guy's like, no, that seems bad. And then uh, like the devil, no, he'll lead my son astray. And then he keeps going and he runs into an angel. And then interestingly, this is what was interesting to me. He doesn't think, no, the angel should take my baby. He thinks the angel is, you know, a messenger of God and God is who let this happen to me, which I thought was like kind of a wild take. Although things, things were pretty wild, generally, religiously speaking at the time. But um, so then he keeps going and he finds death and he thinks death, death is death is the only neutral thing in the world. Death is the only thing that comes for all of us. So this is this is who should raise my son, gives his son to death. And, um, you know, so like I said, the actual fairy tale is a cautionary tale about ego, basically, that the godson of death eventually tries to defeat death. And he can't because who can defeat death? Um, but I wanted to write something that was like, honestly, a little sillier than that. And like, that involved the possibility of death as a father figure. Um, and I was also, I wanted to write not a Western European vampire. I, I wanted to write something that was a different style of vampire. There's basically vampires in every culture. Um, and um, so I'm part Filipino. I wanted to write an Aswang, which is like, it's basically a vampire, but, but, um, you know, with less anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a shape-shifting creature instead. Um, what I think is so funny about Oswangs is that they like, also, no one has ever corrected my pronunciation on this, but I'm still not a hundred percent that I'm saying it correctly. Like, including my mother has never corrected me. And I, I don't know. I'm just like paranoid about it. But anyway, that's just a second generation um, experience. We all, yeah, we all yeah, have this. <laughs> My mom, like, she wanted, she didn't want to teach me Tagalog because she didn't want me to have an accent. She was worried that it was going to, like, affect my my job prospects if I had an accent. She always worried about hers. Um, and then if I tried, like, on my own to say Tagalog words, she would make fun of me and she would <laughs> laugh at me for it. So it was kind of a lose-lose situation. Um, anyway, I've, I've heard that that's a common, like, Filipino experience also. <laughs> <laughs> the being mocked for the very bad Tagalog, my tongue doesn't make those sounds. So um, what I thought was so interesting that my godmother was telling me, because uh, she was very into like Anne Rice. She loves the supernatural stuff. Um, and she was like, you know, the funny thing about Aswans is that they're like very good neighbors that like if you're part of the community, then they'll they'll protect you and they're and they won't they won't protect you, but they won't bother you basically. Like they they keep to themselves, they're very clean. And <laughs> I just thought that was a funny, like, you know, something something in my head was really working with the absurdity of the supernatural. The idea that, like, oh yeah, this like horrifying shapeshifter baby-eating creature exists, but also they're pretty good neighbors, like you could borrow sugar from them. Um, and so, and I like I said, I'd had a brief, very brief career in commercial real estate. Um, the, the, the career of real estate is another kind of silly one, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> and I was also thinking about, um, which is becoming relevant again now with the Kennedy, is the Kennedy curse. Um, that's what my grandma always called it. She was really into JFK Jr. I mean, he was admittedly very handsome, but... <laughs> <laughs> she was uh, really invested in him and, and his, you know, tragic death. And uh, she would always tell me, you know, like, oh, these 
the estate's men, they died so tragically. And I was like, that seems like not a coincidence. Um, it so seems like murder. That in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it seems very interesting for these, for these, you know, for these young, handsome, rich men to just suddenly die very tragically. Like, I wonder what that could be about. Um, so yeah, combined all of these things, did not know how they were combining. I didn't, I, I don't outline, um, but certainly for this book, I was, I just knew I was going to write a book. I knew it wasn't going to be fan fiction. I knew it was my own world. I knew that it was going to be tonally, you know, um, it's, it's very Neil Gaiman, Douglas Adams, Lemony Snicket. Some people say, uh, it, it was, I knew it was going to have that sort of lean to it. Uh, I knew it was a murder mystery. Um, I knew there were all these variety of characters. Um, and I knew I wanted to explore the concept of life and death. Um, but I did not know any of the intricacies of how they would be related or the fact that it was going to be sort of a little puzzle box of, uh, what was coming out until it was done. And it was very hard to piece back together. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it was like, uh, a serendipitous coincidence that I was reading your book while watching season two of Good Omens, which is the Neil Gaiman <laughs> Terry Pratchett adaptation. So I was already yes. in the mood for like a contemporary, like mythical fantasy setting. So it was it was really cool to kind of just stay in that world for a little bit. It is such a a remarkable thing. This is this is the thing with publishing. And the the reason I say that no pathway to publishing is replicable is because when I wrote this, Good Omens, the book existed, but it was old. You know, no, I couldn't have used it as a comp, and the show hadn't happened yet. And then for this book to come out now, this book um, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for three weeks. And that's crazy to me because at the time I wrote it, literally nobody wanted it. And I don't think anyone in publishing would have gambled on it at all. And even even now, it coming out was more a result of like, this is the author of The Atlas Six than like, this book is good on its own. Um, it was more like, we, the publishing monster, know that we can make <laughs> like a predictable amount of money off of this. And so like, we're down for it that's fine. Um, so the fact that it has this, like it, it has this moment. I also didn't think that an autumn release or an autumn that an August release made any sense for this book. I was like, summer, it's so hot. Like here, it's so hot. Like I'm not thinking about fall right now, except I am because Trader Joe's got all the pumpkin stuff out. So, um, so yeah, it was just this weird convergence of, I totally thought that this release was going to go completely under the radar. I didn't think that anyone was going to be interested in it. And I'm not even saying that from a place of humility. I'm saying that like, commercially would not have gambled on this (laughs) and it's just that's why it feels like such a just such an absurd confluence of events (laughs) that we would even be here that you would be talking to me about this at all yeah i mean so you you did a quite a bit to this revised copy can you walk us through the process of returning to like your first self-published book and like updating it for this release Yeah. So I did one for my enemy first, uh, which, um, one for my enemy. Okay. So masters of death was published in 2018. One for my enemy was published exactly one year later in 2019. And so when I wrote masters of death, I was not really thinking about who is this book for? I wasn't thinking about how am I going to sell this book? But once I, once I was sitting down to write one for my enemy, I was trying a little harder. I was like, let's, let's, you know, let's try to fix some of the problems. Let's make sure the middle isn't too saggy. Let's make sure that it's kind of pacey, that it has the the sense of moving forward. I, I decided to structure it 
as a play with shorter scenes so that the audience would kind of feel like an escalating heartbeat. Um, so I did these things on purpose, but I was also going through a phase where I was trying to find my voice and things were a little bit flowery. So I went back to do the editing of One for My Enemy first and I thought, surely One for My Enemy will be harder because walking back the, the purpleness of the prose is like te technically harder than just fixing a more like bare bones sentence. Um, and then I picked up Masters of Death and I was like, oh no. Like <laughs> I, I, I had, you know, I don't go back to my old work usually. That's just, that's like an exercise in self-loathing, I feel. And um, so I was surprised to find that things that I remembered being very like ideologically fleshed out were not really there. Like the conclusions that I felt were like spiritually in the book were not on the page. <laughs> so, so um, I did the editing by myself. I mean, I, I had, uh, you know, amazing copy editors. Of course, my team at Tor is amazing. I really love everyone, especially in production because they're always taking care of everything. It seems completely behind the scenes. Um, my production editor right now, Dakota, is like fixing this one weird problem in the Atlas complex where every time, every pass, I'm like, this needs to be this. And then they, they change it, but then they change one thing that isn't supposed to be changed. So then in the next pass, I'm like, no, 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 you have to go back to this. But then they change all of it. So then I have to, like, it's this incredibly Sisyphean thing. So anyway, shouts to Dakota. Um, so I wasn't alone, but in terms of uh, stylistic choices where I was like, you know, I didn't really, one of my husband's complaints with Masters of Death when I initially wrote it was that I didn't describe the locations of anything. Or he was like, where are we? Which is one of my flaws as a writer, because as a reader, I skim descriptions. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really like just sitting there and people telling me what things look like. I don't have a great understanding of space, so I just like don't care. Like my mind, my mind will generate something, which is like, I don't know, mind generation privilege, I guess. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah. So, you know, taking those things in mind, that's like, okay, well, he wanted to know where we are. Let me like describe a tree. Um, and it was all this stuff that was like trying to fix things that were sort of theoretically a problem, but I, no one had specifically said, you know, it was just a very, it was just a very strange, like second guessy type of editing, which I would not wish on anyone. <laughs> But I am very, I'm definitely very happy with the end result. I'm really happy that I got to spend more time on um, the final round of the game. And that's kind of where everything like is finally like on the page of like, here's the point. Here's the moral. I was telling this story like a fairy tale where I wanted, I wanted the, there to be this like, you know, treasure that you unearth that like, this is what the story was about all along. And it was there in the first version. But I got to really, like, really make it hurt this time. <laughs> so I, I, it was really a privilege to, to be able to do this. I, it, it sucked. Like, it was sweaty and it was gross. Um, but it, it was really an honor to, to be able to re-release this book and to have people love it in a new way and, and come to it originally. is very It's very interesting. I mean, you mentioned uh, getting the game um, to be like more painful and to like put your characters like really through it. And um, for the for the listeners out there who have never read uh, Masters of Death, there is an immortal game where the only rule is to not lose. And um, the crux of the game is that the more you have to lose, the harder 
it is to win. And death supposedly cheats by taking something from the player, whether or not they win, uh, which sounds very unfair, but that's how <laughs> it is. Um, like, can that's you tell life, us, like, am I right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty much life and death. But uh, can you tell us, like, what inspired you to, like, make this game such a central part of your book? Um, you know, I feel like my memory of where the game came from is very, it's very incomplete. It was more like, I think it would be funny if all of these immortals were part of this like gambling ring. And I think in my mind, I thought it was going to be something more straightforward, but it's not like the immortals are playing poker, you know, like I, when it came to the idea was let's have them all like, I, I want to have these like bookies basically. Um, and I want the idea that all of the immortals are just addicts. Um, but the, then when it got to the game itself, I didn't know what the game was <laughs> until I started writing the rounds of it. And that's when I think, you know, the, the idea of the game is like, don't be vulnerable, but also you can't win if you're not vulnerable. It's very hedgehog's dilemma that way that like you, the, you know, the, the idea that you want, you crave intimacy, but you can't physically get close to people. And, and so it, it is truly an unwinnable game. Um, and I think ultimately the book is about intimacy and, and it's about like our relationships with other people and when, when it matters, when it matters to be brave and to love bravely and to exist bravely. And it was something that I think I was questioning at, like, I think I wrote this when I was, I don't know, 27 or 28 and just like terrified of turning 30, <laughs> just like no idea what I was going to be. Like at the time I wrote this book, I had zero success. I barely had a job. I was a law school dropout. I broke my mother's heart, you know, like I, um, and uh, I think like the the energy going into the game was like, okay, well now how do we win? How do we win when these are the pieces? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like writing, you know, like in order to mm -hmm. write a good story, you have to be vulnerable. You have to, and, and it is a very painful process too. So that's yes. kind of like what came into my head when I was uh, reading parts of the game. I was like, oof, like, you know, like who hasn't wanted to have intimacy and also success, uh, but like not want to go through the painful process of being vulnerable, vulnerable uh, yeah. throughout. Yeah. It does not feel like you're winning. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. I always think uh, for me, drafting is the blood, revision is the sweat and like copy edits are the tears. Yeah, I I found it interesting when you said that you have trouble writing locations because your world is so like complex and like thought out. I really love the world that you built in your book. And I'm always amazed when like writers of fantasy and science fiction do world build because it just sounds seems like such a daunting task. Um and you know, you, your your world has so many like it's one of those worlds where it's like, let's just make all the mythologies real and smash them together and like have them interact <laughs> with each other. Um so I want to ask, like, how long did it take you to like come up with, I guess, your your world, your systems? Like, was it something that you worked on as you wrote, or was it something that you like came up with before you started? Like, what's the process for your your world building? 
I think world building is such a, um, I, as I'm, I'm finding, as I'm being, you know, put on more panels that are about world building and stuff that like, there's never any advice you can give about world building because everybody likes their world building a different way. There are people who think that my worlds are totally fleshed out and people who think that like they're completely absent any structure. And, uh, you know, it just, it just depends what you like. Like my worlds, I focus mainly on the feeling of living, like existing in it. So like my worlds have ethics, they have systems, um, but they don't necessarily have shape. (laughs) And so um, when I was writing this book, I was focusing mostly on tonality. So like as I was writing a different portion of the world or what does this world look like or feel like, I was mostly focusing on what kind of language is being used to describe it. So like there, there are some passages that are a little bit more lyrical um, that they don't, they don't really describe anything. They just kind of call certain things to mind. Like the, the one that um, I'm thinking of specifically is the one where I'm describing the meeting point between heaven and hell. And I don't tell you what heaven looks like or what hell looks like, but I point out what it might feel like. And, um, so like to me, what would not be interesting is if I described physically the room that they're in. That that would be the kind of world building that I would skim. <laughs> Apologies to all authors who are really good at that. <laughs> I I'm not I'm not one of them. Um and and so it's I, it's more about creating the like the texture, the the tactility of feeling like you're there by calling to mind something that feels similar. Um but in terms of how long it took that I have, I have, I have very little memory of how long it actually took me to write this. I think this book, uh, I wrote it at a time when I was balancing my time with fan fiction as well. So, um, it wasn't like, yeah, I think I probably wrote this book like a couple days a week for, I'm going to guess like eight to 10 weeks. That was probably how I did things at the time. Um, and then revision was like a more grueling, 24 seven for like a month, you know? Um, uh, and which is not the way my most recent books have been written. Those, because I have deadlines now on a toddler, like those have to get done (laughs) with like little to no faff. Um, so this, you know, just every time I think about masters of death, I just think about it. Uh, I feel like this weird youthful energy where like, like playing, I was just playing, um, and, and one day I, I wanted to play with, um, you know, group, like quick group dialogue, like Gilmore Girls pace dialogue. Um, and then other days I wanted to play with what it feels like to long for something. Like one of my favorite passages in this book is when uh, Vi makes a wish and the way that her wish feels, not when she's making it, but how the wish is heard by Mera, who's the angel. Um, and you know, or the way that the game felt. I knew that there was something romantic. I knew that there was something that what I was really talking about was these, were these feelings of what were potentially unrequited love. Um, and so I wanted to write that feeling in this box of the game. And, and so a lot of it was experimental in a recreational way. It was just like, let's see what it might be like to create this. Um, I don't remember anything specific. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it is quite playful and you do have um like I think the tone is like very lackadaisical and very like 
youthful, as you said. Um, and you do have like quite a supernatural entourage. You have Viola, <laughs> like you said, who's an Ashwang. You have Mera, a guardian angel. You have a Norse demigod. And um, it's it's just a lot of fun because you're mashing all of these uh, mythologies together. So um, this is kind of like an out-of-the-box question, but if you could be any mythical creature, what would you be? <laughs> oh, gosh. God, like any of them. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I create, I like, you know, I'm one of those people. We're writers. We like self-mythologize. It's just like, you know, maybe I actually am this thing. Maybe I actually can see the future. Um, that's one of my my mom's things. She's like, oh, no, no, we're all a little bit psychic. Like the, the women in my family, we're all a little bit psychic. Um, it's such it's an Asian thing, too. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> definitely not OCD thinking at all. <laughs> um and, you know, and, and also like with mental illness and stuff, I feel like I had to mythologize that for myself. That's just like, you know, this is, this is something I have. It makes me a little bit more magical than other people. Um, but let's see. I mean, a lot of the way that I wrote the supernatural creatures was to make things pretty inconvenient to their daily lives. So, <laughs> so it's hard, like existing in the, in the world of this book, it's hard to point to one thing because I was very busy acknowledging the pitfalls. Um, but I do think Fox has a pretty cushy deal. I mean, he was basically handed all these tools of immortality. I think his life is like, I feel like his life is sort of, um, you know, I mean, he's a Nepo kid. Gold. Yeah, yeah. He's a Nepo <laughs> baby. Exactly. And, you know, I think he lives it exactly right. I was I was reading something about, oh, what was it? Someone someone was complaining that, um, Oh my God, what is this band? The Strokes, that the Strokes are all Nepo babies. And everyone was like, but this is what Nepo babies should be doing is being the Strokes. <laughs> <laughs> then, then we all win. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm going to say that. I'm going to say Fox, who's not a creature at all. <laughs> I yeah. mean, that's a, that's a great deal, really. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> like, he ha- like what, what more could you want, really? He was totally fine. Aside from his personal heartbreak, everything was perfect. <laughs> Yeah, sounds. Like I mean, good. I love the fact that he's a fraudulent medium too. That's like such a that's such a grift that like I would it's, definitely do. <laughs> right, exactly. It's a, it's such a like you know as far as grifts go, like how bad is it really? He's providing comfort. That part's not false. So, <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't be a nipple baby if he didn't take advantage of his exactly, familial connections, right? Exactly. <laughs> he wouldn't be benefiting on supernatural privilege. <laughs> If it wasn't well, a little bit of a grift. Well, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful book. I had a really fun time reading it. Um, congratulations on the re-release and congratulations on how it seems like it's doing well. So it must be really cool to see that, you know, your first book is reaching audiences everywhere. It's doing sort of bizarrely well. Um, and, and it feels like it, it feels amazing in that it is validating to a version of me that was kind of like pathetic, I think, from the outside. It was just like, I wanted this so badly. And and I didn't have any reason to believe that it was any good. I like there was there was never, you know, I think from my in-laws, gently, of course, they were like, you know, we, we didn't really think anything was going to come of this. Like, we knew that you love to do this. And we thought of it as a hobby. And I and I always think of how many writers there are who people are looking at them from the outside being like that's a cute little hobby they have and they just keep doing it and they just keep trying and there's no real reason for them to believe it's any good and so for the book that was written in like that era of me 
to be so institutionally successful. The New York Times is pointing at it and saying this is a successful book. That is so wild. That to me, like that is so, it's validating to me personally, but also to the journey of whatever it takes to get your art out there. Um, because like if, if, if it feels right, if it's something that you feel passion about, that passion is there for a reason. It's something that's worth investing in, you know, not necessarily as a <laughs> commercially sold product, but I think it's just, um, you know, the most inspirational thing that I can offer with this is just the idea that just because it's not your time right now, doesn't mean it won't ever be your time or that you should, you should change what you're doing or that you're on the wrong path. Yeah. So you're working on the third Atlas book right now. Um, anything else that you or your alter ego is working on? Tell them, tell me <laughs> on the pipe. Yes. Okay. So, I, so the third Atlas book is actually done um, and it, it is coming out in January. And then um, I'm currently like right the second doing copy edits for my next young adult book, which is called Twelfth Night with a K. It's a pun. It is a remix of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. It's meant to feel like one of those, you know, 2000s high school rom-coms. Um, it's sort of a mashup of 10 Things I Hate About You and She's the Man, uh, but also with a focus on game, gaming and fandom. And um, yeah, so there's that. Um, I also just finished my next adult standalone, Gifted and Talented, but that's like still early days. And then in October, I have an anthology coming out as Olivia called Januaries, which is sort of like my era's tour. So it includes, it's at least half like new material, but also some of the like, you know, the cult classics. So really excited for all of that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Bulba. It was such a fun time talking to you. Congratulations on all your success. And yeah, we hope to talk to you again some other time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I do love books and boba. So feel very <laughs> at home. <you. laughs> And that was Olive Blake. Her books, including Masters of Death, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And you can also find Masters of Death um, on the Books and Bulba bookshop. Um, as always, if you purchase books on our online bookstore, you support not only your local bookstores, but also us at the Books and Bulba podcast. So you can check it out uh, by going to booksandbulba.com. Another way to support us is to uh, help support our Patreon. Just a quick reminder that our September 2023 book club pick is The Family Chow a family drama slash murder mystery about a family that runs a Chinese restaurant in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin. Uh, we'll be discussing that book at the end of the month. As always, if you finish the book and have thoughts, um, please let us know on our Goodreads group or on our Discord if you want to chat with us um, in person. As always, we love to include uh, feedback from our listeners um, in our episodes whenever possible. That'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you once again to Olive Blake for joining us. And um, yeah, we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.
Hi, I'm Charlene Kay. I'm a musician, songwriter, and guitarist. Growing up, I loved music. Whether it was pop, acoustic, emo, I ate it all up. But as a Chinese-American kid living in Scottsdale, Arizona, I also felt isolated, never really seeing artists who looked like me or shared my experiences. So after years of performing on stages all over the world, I wanted to create a space to highlight the amazing Asian musicians who I knew were out there, just not always getting played on the radio. That's why I started Golden Hour, a podcast where Asian singers, songwriters, instrumentalists, and music producers share their personal stories. And it's a space for you to discover your new favorite artist. Listen to Golden Hour with me, Charlene Kay, wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. <laughs>